Welcome back to the Lion Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and this is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's conversation is with one of what I would consider to be one of the most brilliant minds on the planet, Charles Eisenstein. He is an author, an essayist, and a truly brilliant mind. His work spans the history of human civilization, economics, spirituality, and the ecology of movement. And this conversation gets kind of touches on a lot of aspects of all of that, really. He, one of his books that is one of my favorite books is called Sacred Economics and gets into just the, the system that we are all indoctrinated into, not wrong or right, just um, what it is, what is capitalism, what is consumerism, and uh, how does it inform the way that we think, the way that we feel, and the way that we operate in our daily lives. Charles Eisenstein is great. I think you guys are going to enjoy this conversation. I want to thank y'all for leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to this. I want to read one from Much of Megan. She says, L-O-M-L. I do not know actually what that means. L-O-M-L. It's an acronym. Laughing on my lawn, perhaps. The humor, the depth, the lightheartedness, the insight, the value, the spirit. I love this podcast. Aaron's awesome. Thank you much, Megan. Appreciate you very much. Thank you all so much for reviews. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for doing you. Let's get to it with my guy, Charles Eisenstein. For starters, I'm very excited for the opportunity to get to have this conversation with you because I feel like somehow you've tapped into some oracle-like qualities of the human experience where I feel like I enjoy getting to ask profound questions that I've never really, you know, it would just kind of make my, my head spin. And one of the things that has been a head scratcher for me that's been relevant in the last recent was kind of this concept of like good and bad, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then evil, you know, and, and those guys, you know, we point at them as being the problem, you know, and they are the evil ones and we are the good ones. And a question that I, I, I kind of toss out at dinner parties oftentimes is, is does evil exist? And if it does, where does it come from? And, and what is it exactly? Well, sorry for starting that way. <laughs> I'm yes. just curious. So let, let's uh, recap. We'll get lighter as we go. <laughs> yeah. So in a nutshell, 3,000 years of theology and philosophy. Let's solve yeah. it right now. Yeah. Yeah. The nature of evil. I figured. Uh-huh. Um, I guess I would start with, with, you know, like rather than to like go into some metaphysical discussion, I would mm-hmm. go into like when this conversation comes up at a dinner party or when you're meditating on it yourself, contemplating this question, where does the question come from? Like what in you is curious? So for, for, for me, my sense is that evil, the way that we think of it to, to be, like there is an inherent nefarious force that exists and its pure function is destruction. Well, I mean, destruction is fine, but then that's a, a con- your, you know, your story around what destruction means. But my sense as far as like a, a person, like, you know, a, a Hitler would be an obvious one that people would present. Every Hitler on the planet, every authoritarian fascist dictator, you know, someone that's you know, a murderer or, you know, anyone that has something that we don't accept in culture as being like very appropriate. At one point, they all liked baseball and wanted to kiss a girl. And, you know, I, I think that the, the root seed of every human is, you know, love and, and goodness. And then something happens, something twists where they, they were shunned or they weren't loved or, you know, they, they, were, they, they were taught that 
they were wrong or bad, you know, and there was some kernel of shame or some kind of, and then, you know, 20 years later, it, it looks on the face like, ah, this is evil. And so that's kind of my, and in, in this time of such great division, I think we're looking for people that are, you know, bad guys and good guys. And I think oftentimes when you're pointing your finger at someone that is bad, you're subconsciously seeking to reassure yourself that you're good. Yeah. It's also a very convenient way of thinking because when you frame problems in terms of good guys and bad guys, then the solution is very simple. And it's the same solution in every one of these situations, which is to win a fight against the bad guys. This plot line has been fed to us and inculcated in us through um, through culture, through Hollywood, through all kinds of stories that have that plot line. So we take that. So it's not only um, psychologically satisfying because you get to identify with being on team good in the war against team evil, but it's also, it preserves habitual ways of doing things and whole systems that are built around that particular mythology of good versus evil. So it's a form of reductionism. Now, I'm not saying that, I wouldn't say that that mythology is totally useless all the time. There are situations where thinking in terms of good versus evil may be the most fruitful and most accurate way to look at the situation, but it leaves out so much complexity and and uh, excludes so many creative ways of addressing problems that just won't occur to you when you're stuck on the idea that Donald Trump or Bill Gates or Anthony Fauci or you know you fill in the blank is doing what they're doing because they are evil. Because once you hold them in that story, then there's really no alternative. But but if you're if you're holding them in a story if they're a complex human being subject to this pressure and that pressure and maybe internally having doubts about what they're doing but but they're incentivized to do this and to think that and like once you have a more complex understanding then instead of simply trying to defeat and destroy that person you might adopt some other approach like maybe you can change the circumstances the intellectual circumstances, yeah. the financial circumstances, the cultural circumstances. It, this is especially relevant today as we have a society that is increasingly pitted against each other in an intensifying like kind of civil war, although most of it is just words flying around at this point. But the the rhetoric is ratcheting up. And, you know, as long as each side diagnoses the problem as the evil of the other side, then each side is left with only one solution. And the consequences could be pretty bloody. So I think in this moment, it's really important to look outside the good versus evil mythology and investigate other stories to explain what's happening and and yeah. who we are. Yeah, it's interesting that the, the power of story. I think you know, story is what really allows us to be moved at an emotional level. And I think oftentimes we get sprayed with a bunch of facts or statistics but ultimately the thing that moves us about those is that is the narrative and the story behind the facts and the statistics and i think from observing you you're very acutely aware of the power of story and you infuse it into the way that you communicate and the way that you write and the way that you you know convey your your the deeper meaning of what you what you would like to say is that something that you've always been uh 
acutely aware of or am I, you know, am I making stuff up? No, I, for a long time, I've been thinking in terms of story because uh, most of the problems facing the world are the product of human agreements. They're not, it's not like we're beset by a random invasion of locusts, you know, or space aliens or something like that. We're facing the threat of an asteroid. And we all, you know, most of, most of the world hunger, environmental collapse, economic inequality, all these things are the product of the way that we run our society and what we agree is important and how and who we give power to. Power is a function of human agreement. The, the leaders of our governments and our corporations, they don't have like superpowers, like a villain in a, in a movie. They have power because the people grant them power, perceive them as having power in a system. Money only exists because of the agreements that we share around the meaning of symbols. So that, that's why I became so interested in story or, or narrative or mythology, because if our problems are created by our agreements about symbols and our myths, then we can't uncreate them that way. We could, we could forge a different kind of society. You're so we were, when we were out hiking at that, that amazing waterfall place in Austin, where I was telling you that sacred economics is like one of my most shared books with people. It really like I, I I mean I implore anybody listening to this like I think sacred economics is one of I think I actually have it on a book list like my top twenty favorite books and it it gets into outlining the the narrative of you know, modern capitalism, which capitalism, nothing wrong with it or, you know, good or bad or anything like that. But economics, the way that we, I think, are navigating it presently is such that we trade money, you know, a symbol of energy, essentially, for resources. The resources can, can kind of come from anywhere. You know, it's, it's just the extraction of the resources. Like, that's what we want. We want to get the resources and then we'll make a trade. Also, there's, you know, there's, there's more to it than that, obviously. And I'd you know, love for you to elaborate it. But I think it would be such a beautiful world if somehow, you know, we were repaid. There was an energetic exchange for just benevolently taking care of the forest, <laughs> you know, or you went out, you picked some trash up off the street or you helped someone. And, you know, it's interesting how that maybe is it just convenience? That that's kind of the, the basic of our economics. All right. Yeah. I'm going to go down to a really basic level uh, in yeah, answering, answering your inquiry. Obvi obviously, I need it based off of that, that lack of an explanation. Well, the thing about money is that it it works best for exchanging or distributing things that you can quantify. So so it works well to reward people for producing, I mean at least in theory, okay? In practice, we can talk about capitalism. I mean that whole divide capitalism anti-capitalism really neglects the question what is capital? Because that again is an agreement among human beings. Money and property are agreements, and and different societies have had different agreements. But that would be maybe another another topic. Uh, but but yeah. it works best for things that you can quantify. So if someone is producing food or material objects, commodities especially, then um, hold on a second. My eight year old is calling me. I'll bring him in, Gary. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're keeping that in the podcast yeah he was he was at a friend's <laughs> house all day um Good. and and you know but the time with his friend how much should i pay 
the friend's mom for watching the kids that day. Yeah. Like there's something already a bit sacrilegious about that question because we recognize intuitively that there are some things that that cannot or should not be reduced to a quantity because they are qualitative because they are mm. they are in some sense spiritual. They can't be counted, they can't be weighed, they can't be measured. Money it only operates well in the world of that which can be quantified, weighed and measured, which means that as the money realm expands as a function of interest-bearing debt, there's there's a dynamic in there that causes money, the money world to expand. That means that more and more things get quantified, more and more human relationships become transactions. And the uh, qualitative realm, the realm where you don't count, you don't keep track, where you don't therefore compete and try to get the best deal, and where you're not right. in a oppositional position, um, that realm shrinks as the money realm grows. So a lot of what sacred economics is about, it's about reclaiming the non-monetary realm, which doesn't mean to abolish the monetary realm and to stop using money. But it's like, you know, maybe there are some things in life that should not be quantified and that when we try, we leave it. There's something that always gets left out. And, And I think this is what so many people are craving today. It's not, you know, okay, there's a lot of people craving today food, all right? There are, what is it, like 10 million people died of hunger this last year? But actually, and that wasn't because of not enough food. It was because of distribution. The world yeah, wastes way more food resources. than it would take to feed those people. But but really, what our material needs are, are met, by and large, in industrialized societies. So what people are, are craving, why they are still miserable when those needs are met, it's because of the lack of things like community, like authentic relationships, uh, connection to the beings of nature and the human beings around you. I could go on, but but that's a little piece of it. Yeah. Well, so the reason I ask about money is I feel like that's a lot of people have the narrative of the story that, you know, money is the root of all evil, you know, and it kind of lends itself into the present circumstance of what seems to be, you know, one side of a fence would suggest that it seems like there's like a looming authoritarian takeover of sorts that's that's manifesting itself. And then the other side, or there's probably lots of different sides of maybe lots of different fences that I don't even see, you know, but would suggest that no, there's a terrible life-threatening pandemic and we're doing everything that we possibly can. And for you to go against the concept of that narrative means like you are an imbecile or, a, you know, a murderer or something, you know, something terrible. And the question behind that, at least from the side that says that there's there's something nefarious going on in the background would be one suggestion that it could, it, it could just be, you know, corporate greed and you know yeah. vaccine companies you know trying to to spread a narrative for to be very powerful you know and it would come back into kind of the sacred economics conversation if that was if there was any level of truth to that but i think there's there's various different i think there's some truth to it different stories yeah uh, i was I'm, I'm reading a a, a a david graber's new book he's an anthropologist he passed away a couple of years ago right before the pandemic and he's describing various cultures that had practices, cultural practices to make sure that powerful, capable, exceptional people wouldn't exert dominance over everybody else. Uh, one in, in the uh, Kung of the Kalahari Desert, there was a practice of insulting the meat because there were some men who were very, very good hunters. 
And in order that they wouldn't get too much prestige and power, there was a custom of anytime he brings back like a really good kill, everyone's like, what? You're expecting us to eat that? You know, you, you yeah. or he, maybe he brings his friend out to help drag the carcass back. And he's like, you brought me out here for this? And, yeah. and so in t- anticipating that, they become very humble. And they say, well, I think I got something out there. It's probably not worth bringing back, but you want to come. So, so they have, they have ways to channel people's, you know, I mean, we, we all have, you know, human nature comprises so many things. So the reason I brought that up uh, is that they had a system that discouraged greed, that discouraged the kinds of behaviors that you're talking about. So I, I like to say that we can explain much of what's going on today, even the, the you know, the COVID madness by a systemic explanation and a the explanation of the narratives, the belief systems that guide our society. So for example, there could be the the germ theory of disease, the pattern I mentioned before of solve any problem by finding the bad guy. In this case, it's a germ. Like those things reign regardless of the corruption and malfeasance of, of corporate executives and health officials and so forth. But it's also true that I mean, I just read Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s new book. I mean, he describes in painstaking detail exactly how regulatory agencies have been captured by corporations, how unscrupulous individuals are able to thrive in that setting. Like we have a system that enables unscrupulous individuals to rise to the top, which is the opposite of the Kung society. So can't say that. So so in, in a way, it's like it's kind of a paradox. Yeah, it's these dominating, ruthless, unscrupulous, greedy people who are a key cause of what's going on today. Yet it is actually also the system because the system is what allows them and even encourages them to do the things that they do. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess my question for all of this is, you know, I've, 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 you've probably been around even more conversations like this than I have, but my curiosity is always, you know, like what is the solution toward a higher good? You know, because I think oftentimes among dinner parties where people are talking about, you know, the, the evil reptilian warlords, you know, or the cabal or all these different, these stories or narratives of, of like the bad guys, they're doing the very thing that they're casting out as being evil you know where they're uh-huh. they're 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 turning them into little rats or turning them into something that's like subhuman you know and i even noticed that in myself you know because i'm you know i live in austin texas and i've had the vid a couple times you know i'm like young fit it's not something that passes my mind outside of like what's happening in the news and the world and traveling and such and i even noticed it in myself you know seeing people that I would deem to be, it's totally unnecessary for them to be like wearing a mask, walking their dog in a park. But I don't know anything about that person's story. I don't know, you know, anything. I don't even know why they're wearing a mask. It may have nothing to do with the present situation. It might just be there in a mask. And I noticed this underlying contempt come up in me. And I'm like, ha, like, I'm the problem. <laughs> you know, it's, it's something that I, I think I witness with, with people. Oftentimes when we're pointing fingers, you know, obviously there's like the cliche, like you have three fingers pointing back at yourself. But so my question is like, what is the solution? And is there even a solution? Because obviously that comes down to a story as well. What, what's, what's the path towards a higher good? Do you just, you know, kind of Taoists 
step back and kind of watch it all play out? Do you intervene? At what point does a person put their feet down and say no more? You know, like that's, that's kind of my question is when do I put my foot down and say no more? Yeah. I mean, I, I reached that point of no more earlier this year where I had at the beginning of the, of the pandemic, I just blurted out what I thought about things and <clears throat> warned of the uh, techno dystopian dangers and all of this. And I said, like, you know, this, yeah. once we implement these things, they're never going to go away because the threat of an infectious disease will never go away. And I got a lot of criticism for it. And I, I kind of like, and, and some of the criticism really got inside, you know, and I'm like, hold on, have I just killed thousands of people? Because the people who read my post took it less seriously, and like I had to really come back to my to my home base and get really clear about why I believed what I believed, and so that I so that I I could be like really solid in 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 speaking what I actually know, and and that doesn't mean that I'm you know 100 accurate even to this day, but. I'm like, I got to be really, really careful here. And I, so I went through a lot of doubt and stuff, but at some point, like what was happening in the world was just too much for me. And, you know, I was just like, right or wrong, I've got to do something about this. And I've been hyper aware though, of that energy of this must stop. This is wrong. No more being hijacked by my antipathy or contempt for the people who are complicit you know, or the people who are like, if there's anything in me that, that feels what you were describing there, this contempt for the idiot who's alone in his car wearing a mask or whatever, like that, if I'm, if I put out anything that inflames that contempt, and if I'm standing in that energy, I'm actually going to be serving that energy. And that energy of contempt, that energy of dehumanization, that's the same energy that is powering a lot of the COVID mandates and lockdowns and things like that. Like we're being treated, we're being infantilized. The public is being infantilized. We're being ordered around as if we were kids in school who need a hall pass to, you know, go to the bathroom. And you get your hall pass if it's an essential function, but if it's not an essential function, you have to stay where you belong. Like that, I mean, we shouldn't do that to children either for that matter, but but certainly not for <laughs> to adults, you know? And so, so like that, I don't want to contribute to that mindset that says some people are just pathetic and I know what's better for them than they do. They shouldn't wear a mask. They shouldn't get vaccinated. They should. Do I really know that? And even if I believe that fervently, when I hold them as like some lower version of humanity, what am I not seeing about either about this person and their journey to where they are right now or about the the world that they're seeing? Like, what are they seeing? If I stand in their shoes, do I really know what it's like to be them? So I've yeah. been walking like this really delicate balance right now. And I'm not sure if I've been fully successful in holding that balance where, where on the one hand, I want to be like really forthright and say, this is wrong. This must stop. And we can't just stand by and let it happen. You know, this is abuse. Yeah. And on the other hand, like, I don't want to, to, to like come across as accusing people of being enablers, bystanders, abusers, you know, like with the pejorative connotations of these words, like the shame around these words. 
want to take a moment and share something that I use on a weekly basis. And anytime I travel ever, it is an absolute must have. That is blue blocking glasses from Raw Optics. The lenses on these glasses are the best quality lenses that you can get. Frames are in the same category and they actually look steezy. They look stylish. The reason that blue blockers are so important is because when you are projecting blue light into your eyeballs at night after dark, it is sending the signal that it's time to wake the freak up, starts to release the accompanying neurochemistry and hormones to signal you to get up and at them before you go to bed. So if you're looking at your cell phone, you're looking at your TV, watching Netflix, whatever it is, throw a pair of blue blockers on from Raw Optics. It's the best quality you can get, I guarantee that. And if you don't love them, send them back, 100% money back, guarantee. Jump over to Raw Optics, R-A-O-P-T-I-C-S.com forward slash align, 15% off your blue blocking purchase. I also wanted to share another tip that has moved the needle for me more than almost anything, and that is cold thermogenesis or cold water therapy. I've been using the ice barrel for my cold plunges. It is a sleek, slim design that is actually vertical, so it fits anywhere. I have it out on front of my porch here, my apartment, and fits on a pretty small patio, which is fantastic because it's vertical. It's quite affordable. It's only around a thousand bucks. If you use the Align code, you can get a hundred and $25 off the line code is or the website is icebarrel.com slash align uh, cold water thermogenesis is great if you're experiencing any type of like fatigue low energy it's helpful suggest to be helpful with uh, low mood or anxiety and things of the sort it's like a nervous system reset also literally changes the composition of your fat from white adipose the, the jiggly stuff that you don't want a ton of to brown adipose which is quite more metabolically efficient and it's just great it's one of the most potent nervous system resets you could possibly engage with. Tony Robbins uses them every morning. Most athletes I've come in contact with have attributed a lot of their own physiological success and healing and reparation and anti-inflammation to cold thermogenesis. So highly recommend it. Jump over to icebarrel.com slash align for $125 off of your purchase. That is icebarrel.com, I-C-E-B-A-R-R-E-L.com slash align. You will get $125 off your purchase. This is the most affordable cold plunge that you get. And it's also the most space efficient. And I love it. It looks beautiful. I'm like super excited to, to share it with people. And I think you guys will appreciate it as well. So icebarrel.com slash align, $125 off your purchase. Enjoy. Yeah, I, I went through a phase, particularly in high school, where I found humans to be disgusting. Mm -hmm. And it was like this, it was, it was, it was like, I just everything and I, and I it was kind of like this apathy for everything. And I found emotion to be just a cocktail of neurochemistry. And I found like everything was just like this banal, gray, ugh. And I found the concept of sex to be just like dirty and gross. It's just like everything's just like, ugh, like, like humans are fucking just gross. Mm -hmm. And it was such an interesting thing to have that experience of having that filter on, on the world. You know, and I think it's an interesting thing, you know, the, the way that we are, you know, the, the culture that we're inculcated into or, you know, indoctrinated into it, it really forms our filter. And the filter is, it's, it's always subjective and it can always change. And I think it's an interesting thing. Presently, I was listening to your podcast that you just released with, what's the CT? What was, what was his name? Oh, CJ Hopkins. CJ Hopkins. Yeah, yeah. And he was talking about the o over patholog patho pathologization of everything. 
you know, and I think that that was something that's like when you look at when you pathologize, that's your filter is this pathologization. It's a hard word for me to say, apparently. Then that's then that's the reality, you know, and I, I, I feel like during this experience, one of the, the major pathologizations that I witnessed was the pathologization of uh, death which is such a, a a wild wild concept like and, and it gets into our it unfurled our relationship culturally you know in western culture at least with the the concept of death you know and it's it's i don't know i think it's it's awkward <laughs> you're like oh it's like is it bad is it good you know like am i afraid of it should i should we celebrate it <laughs> you know? like what are we supposed to do with that <laughs> so so what what brought you out of that uh time in high school where you were you know in the um you know, kind of Newtonian hell of it's just atoms and void and nothing means anything. It's all random chemicals. Love is just a chemical cascade in your body yeah. and so on. Like what, what brings you out of that? That's a, a good question. I don't actually know. I think just time. Um, at the time there was, a, in retrospect, there was some interesting stuff going on. Like my dad was using drugs at that point and he was, you know, there was like pretty deep instability in at the home situation. Now he's, he's doing really well. And he's like, you know, as I'm like very grateful, you know, that he's been able to turn his life around. Thankfully, it's really amazing and rare, you know, so I'm very grateful for it. Um, but I think that there was home was deteriorating at that moment and i think so there was probably like some broader repression happening that like a systemic repression and what brought me into a place of being able to like engage with life again i think just time yeah mm -hmm. like i moved to hawaii you know i think like things are kind of changed up but i don't i don't remember exactly i think it was kind of just time i think my body was just adapting it was like temporary like probably temporary while wow, this is really stressful and you don't even realize it because you don't want to deal with it so we're just going to repress and then that's spilt into other aspects of my perception of the world i think mm -hmm. yeah. yeah i mean i'm i'm well familiar with that state of being which is also kind of a cultural it's a um, bellwether of our culture in a way because the reigning ideology of science says pretty much that that yeah yeah exactly i felt like i was living science right but there was no there was no like magic or mysticism or joie de vivre it was just like i was living in a in science yes and in its own terms it is irrefutable like you could have the most profound psychedelic experience but from outside the experience someone says well that's just your brain chemistry you know that's just the part of your brain that distinguishes between self and other getting deactivated. So you had this tawdry experience of universal oneness. You know, it seems like ridiculous from the cynic's point of view. Yeah. And, and so you can't actually assail it from within the logical universe that it exists. And but once someone has that experience and it doesn't have to be a psychedelic experience, you know, there's many forms that this can take. Uh, including just the maturation that you're describing and the opening of, uh, you know, opening into the feeling of connection, the yeah. feeling, the experience of intimacy, like that doesn't fit into the logical constraints of the story of separation is what I call it. So right now, I think that there's our civilization, our society is still governed by the precepts of separation that the world is this playground of force and mass, that meaning is something created by human beings, that the universe is just this random bunch of stuff, that there's no intelligence outside of human intelligence, not in the world, not in the cosmos, that is unscientific, that's poetic, you know, maybe it's nice, but it's not scientific. Like, and therefore that 
human progress means to exert more and more control over this random arbitrary world that's that doesn't care about us and that could extinguish us at any time if we don't control it. And in order to make the world better, we have to impose intelligence onto a world that has none. Like our whole society is geared around this. Uh, our money system and the quantification of everything and the technological program to control everything, to track everything, to surveil every person, like all of this fits into the program of control that is a corollary to the story of separation. And as with trying to convince somebody that there's something outside of it, like you can't actually use convincing to do that. So our society also being stuck in that teen, really it is like this teenage, this adolescent, this immature state of being and what changes it. That's why I asked you, like, I kind of, I'm always interested to know, like what brought you out of the story of separation? And it's something that we can all reflect on because like, even in our you know, current medical health, you know, public health crisis, if you want to call it that, that is also our response to COVID also comes from the story of separation. Like here's something to control. It's all about control. So, and that makes total sense to somebody living in a whole ideology of control where progress itself is defined as control things more and more and more. So of course, Bill Gates wants to, to implant everybody with tracking devices. I mean, that's progress. We'll control things better and bad things won't be able to happen anymore. He doesn't have to be evil to want to do that. All he has to be is immersed in this ideology. So the question that I asked you, what brought you out of it, has a corollary to, uh, which is, how do we bring Bill Gates out of it? Or how do we bring the whole system out of it? How do we bring our yeah. society out of it? And and yeah, our, ourselves out of it. Because even when we, we are pointing yeah. out to the other, I think that, that, that that's kind of what I was alluding to in the beginning is I, I think that oftentimes if we're in that position of pointing out to the other, I'm typically very suspicious of myself when I'm pointing, which maybe, you know, it's just, maybe that's just, just best practice, you know, but when, when we start to perpetuate the other, and, then, and I think that that's, there is a, a meaningful root or like a, like a, a thread along what is progress truly, you know, to the, to the, you know, the, the health or longevity or exuberance or vibrance, you know, of humanity. And I think it, it, it is that like reducing separation and then also not villainizing separation and you know cartesian philosophy and you know newtonian mechanics and those are also beautiful it's just there's no good guy bad guy there's just tools and then there's the imbalanced usage of of tools i think like plato plato said something like excessive democracy leads to an authoritarian situation or excessive excessive freedom leads to to constriction something along he didn't say exactly that but something along those lines like when we go too far in one direction then naturally organically we want to pull back another question i i had for you as far as like deep oracle like questions that i haven't been able to get to the, the bottom of is homelessness and people in destitute positions in culture is that from your lens of you know philosophy and economics and you know everything is is that something that's just innate in in culture does that need to to, to be there is there some path does it serve some purpose or function from your perspective and if you if you're just like i don't know you can just say pass well, why well. Do you want to know it's that? another thing i'm just 
it's just another head scratcher for me. You know, I'm, I'm always really interested in, you know, anytime I see somebody, I, I see myself in people in like destitute situations. You know, when I, when I walk in by somebody that's strung out on something or has blisters all over their body or, you know, mm-hmm. just in, in like seemingly like not a good way, I don't feel that much different than that person. You know, and some mm-hmm. I'm always kind of curious of like, okay, what happened in, in my sequence of events that brought me to be the person in the newish car that they're asking for money from and you, a reflection of me to be in the position of, you know, the other side asking for. Yeah. So, I mean, sometimes I have the feeling that if, that if there were just a couple things in my life that didn't break the right way, that I could be in that situation too. Oh, for sure. You know, like, like, <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm I'm a pretty successful writer, you know, and quasi intellectual, public intellectual, but like I got some lucky breaks, you know. Mm-hmm. And if I hadn't had those, I mean, I sometimes I read brilliant work by people who never were anywhere near as successful as I am, and like I'm like, gosh, this person's smarter than me. I don't deserve this any more than anybody else. I didn't deserve my good birth, you know, my loving upbringing. I didn't des- I didn't earn any of that stuff. So like, why me? And why the same question is kind of what you're asking. Well, why them? So Confucius, when you were speaking, Confucius came up to me. Um, He uh, apparently thought that this is just the way things are, that there's always going to be, you know, emperors and beggars and everybody in between. And in, in Chinese thought, there's a concept of fate and fortune, two different words for two slightly different things. One of them, Ming, is fate. Yun is fortune. And you really can't do anything about your Ming and your Yun. The Ming is like your basic destiny, like the overall trajectory of your life. And Yun is the ebbs and flows of luck that might make you really lucky, like really, you know, everything goes your way financially or socially or romantically at a certain phase of life. And then another phase of life, no matter what you do, it doesn't work. And and, and so there's all these teachings around, you know, how to engage life depending on where you are in this cycle of, of fortune. So basically in this way of thinking, I mean, some people, they're, ju- they're just going to be beggars. They're just going to be, they're born to be destitute. They're born unlucky. They're born to be unhealthy. They're going to meet certain challenges at various points in life. This is their lot. And some of us are, the word today is privileged, but in Chinese thinking, it's it, the concept is fortunate. So then the question is, well, okay, how do you live life? And I think that's really what's underneath. I asked you, why do you want to know? And I think that there's something like there's a, a quest behind the question, which is, mm. I want to live a good life. I want to live and not good as in commendable, but good as in it uses the gifts that I have been given in the right way as they should be used. And the gifts are you know, everything that you've received that has made you fortunate. Like there's that's that's the nature of gift. Gift want gifts want to be given in turn. And and that's why when you receive a lot and you feel grateful, then you also feel generous. That's the spirit of the gift operating within you. So the same is true of our life gifts. So underneath your question is like, how do I live as a good man? Like, how do I do this thing? Like, like what is my role? And what Confucius would say is that whatever station you ha- have been cast into by fate and fortune, 
your duty is to discharge that office with humanity and and compassion. Yeah. So, you know, you don't repudiate your office if you are destined to be wealthy and powerful and so forth, but you use that well because you can occupy this office in a way that serves others and serves life and beauty on earth, or you could occupy it in a way that just serves yourself. So how are you going to do that? And that's why in um, a lot of places on earth, even to this day, if you are wealthy, it, like, it is considered your duty to hire lots and lots of servants. Whereas <laughs> in, in the US, it's kind of like, you know, people are not, they try to be as inconspicuous as possible about the fact that they have, you know, their own driver or their own gardener, or their own personal chef who comes in and their cleaning lady and their nanny and all that kind of stuff. Like that's like, you know, rich people have that and that we're supposed to be a more equal society. But in India, you know, or South Africa or some other places I've been, you're supposed to hire all these people because duty of wealth, the responsibility of wealth is to take care of lots and lots of people. That's the way that the gift, the fortune of wealth is given forward. So in a, in a Confucian, in Confucian thinking, there's, there's really not much of an idea of revolution because this is just the order of things that heaven has decreed upon this earth. Mm-hmm. And I'm not personally saying that we should not try to change society, but I'm also like, you know, there are also those people who so full of idealism about systems change that they on the personal level sometimes are not fulfilling their Confucian duty and they're, they're stingy, you know, and they just walk right past those homeless people. So I don't know if that, that helps. I want to share a quick little hack that I've been utilizing to get the greens of my day into my body. First thing in the morning, I am drinking Organifi's green juice for body reset and stress support. First ingredient on here is organic wheatgrass, which is like those fancy grocery stores you might go to and you get wheatgrass shots or whole foods or whatever. So delicious, so good. And then it's got a whole plethora of other superfood greens in there. So it's got uh, moringa, spirulina, chlorella, and also matcha. So this is a great hack to get them antioxidants in your body first thing in the morning. I also use it as a pick-me-up in the afternoon. I'll put some ice cubes in a little glass jar, throw a scoop of Organifi's green juice in there, stir it up, and ba-dang, so good. It's like unbelievably delicious. Uh, If you want to get yourself a 20% discount, you can jump over to Organifi.com forward slash align. That's Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash align. You'll get 20% off your purchase on any and all of their products, but recommend checking out. I'd also like to share something I take every night before bed. That is magnesium from Bio Optimizers. Mag Breakthrough is my favorite magnesium supplement. That's right, it's my favorite. Tastes delicious, which is kind of strange, but I actually eat the capsule to see how it tastes and I enjoy it. Um, it contains all seven different forms of magnesium. And the reason that this is valuable is magnesium is largely deficient in modern day soil. So if you're interested in a deep, restful night's sleep, muscular repair, and a general sensation of relaxation, at the end of the day, I highly recommend utilizing magnesium from Mag Breakthrough. 
get yourself a sweet discount by going over to magbreakthrough.com forward slash align podcast. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com forward slash align podcast. Get yourself a discount. If you don't absolutely love this stuff, it does not improve your sleep. Get your money back. No questions asked. Jump over. Try it out. I know it's going to make a difference for you. That's magbreakthrough.com forward slash align podcast. Well, I think I think like all of these threads, they tie back together. You know, it's it, it all comes back to the concept of of separation or unicity. You know, and if a person's stingy, you know, they're they're clenching onto you know money in this case, but it's like maybe cl- clenching onto life, perhaps. Maybe that's you know a bit of a a bit of a stretch. And something that I've I've heard you, and then this kind of comes back to like the pathologizing death. You know, creating a resistance around death. Um, so I've heard you describing in like the the your your essay about coronavirus particularly uh but describing this as as being like a almost almost kind of like a rite of passage like this is this is something that's happening for culture as a whole mm-hmm. uh, me being you know lockdowns and all of like the, the the turmoil that's been been happening over the last couple of years and i just wonder your your thoughts on a rite of passage you know the value of that for a human being is there a lack of that is that is that instilled into culture whether we realize it or not doesn't matter yeah i mean i could say a lot about that even going back to your your story about being a teenager one thing that many cultures practiced was a deliberate rite of passage that would graduate a young man especially a young man um the state you're describing is is Girls might go through it too. In fact, they definitely do sometimes, but it's really very much a, a boy thing. So anyway, they would take the young man and put him in a situation that obliterated the world of the separate self, maybe involving extreme pain. I mean, you would confront all, everything that comes along with that view of separation, psychedelic plants, you know, something like that, so that you would transcend or at least have an experience of being beyond this separate individual self. And um, and so you can know who you really are. So I do believe that the that that civilization wide we're going through an initiation like that where all of our ideas and self-conceptions about about being separate from nature, about controlling nature, about achieving more and more health, more and more uh, well-being, uh, more and more happiness through dominating and controlling nature, dominating and controlling the other, like all of this stuff that seems to be working so well in, say, the 1950s. Uh, we are, it, it's, it's revealing its limitations. And the paradise that we thought we were going to achieve through the technologies of control is turning out to be a hell that we imagine clinging to this desperate hope that finally it will become a paradise with when we finally extend control, extend technology to its final realm and control maybe our very neurotransmitters so that we can have any experience that we want, you know, through like augmented reality and and you know neuro silicon links and all that stuff like there's still this but it seems like a pretty desperate hope you know that life is going to finally be awesome with with one more new invention like life was supposed to be awesome with the invention of the steam engine you know i mean this we've we've seen this movie too many times so we're stuck in in a 
in a reality, in a story that we were ready to transcend. And so I think that maybe one thing that's happening with COVID and the failure that's like being put in people's faces of the most high tech technologies of control, genetic, you know, genetic vaccines, you know, like we're like, this is supposed to, this is, this is the very essence of progress of technology down to the genetic level. And it isn't working. So I think that that the um, this is part of the initiation where you are confronted with the futility of all of your capabilities, where what you are accustomed to doing, the way you're accustomed to being, the way that you know how to solve problems, everything familiar doesn't work in this situation. That is an initiatory situation because it calls forth from you new capacities, those that had been dormant, those that had been excluded, those that were not ripe yet, those come to the fore in an initiatory ordeal. And that's what we're going through right now. And like, what are these new capacities? They're everything that has been marginalized and derided as, you know, holistic and alternative and quackery pseudoscience. I mean, you're familiar with some of the stuff, like you're, I cannot, from what I remember, you're, you're kind of connected to the body hacking, you know, and fitness and all that kind of stuff. Like there are so many technologies in that realm that if they were practiced nationwide, the death rate from COVID would be a 10th or a 50th of what it is. Sure. Like so much information, so much knowledge out there. Why is that not more accepted? I mean, it's been under development for decades and decades, all this holistic stuff. Why is it not more accepted? It's because it doesn't fit into the paradigm of control. And some of it kind of, I don't know, like, I don't want to make that too categorical a statement. You know, some some of these guys are like, yeah, you know, like the, the protein, you know, and the metabolism, and like, they get very scientific <laughs> about it. But at the bottom of it, there's a, tr- a trust in the intelligence of the body, oh, yeah. an intelligence, an organic intelligence that is not the product of controlling things. Yeah. The last thing that I wanted to i had on my my list of things i wanted to touch on was the origination i think again this is all what we've been talking about the whole time it all it all relates but the origination of the the sensation to to want to control nature you know like it's i I wrote down a a bit from descartes talking about becoming the lords and possessors of of nature you know that'll like finally lead to this utopian situation where like cool we got it you know we've we've organized everything we've delineated everything we've you know we've got barcodes on every component mm-hmm. of of existence <sighs> you know it's kind of like this this is like pathological ocd type syndrome of sorts <laughs> and yeah. you can't do that with biology because biology is a you know it's a variable system it, it you know it thrives on variability it thrives on on you know and non-linear lack of order yeah it's, it's non-linear a, it's an, too. you know it's yeah it's 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 an emergent system it's a self-organizing system when you try to organize the system you just you're not as smart as biology Right. And it's great to have science and all the things, but but I my my question is where where is that that root sensation of wanting to control? Is it have something to do with a relationship of with death? Is it have something? Is it just a natural innate thing to, about being a Homo sapien to want to organize all the bits? So control isn't bad, you know. All all animals yeah. exercise some degree of control over their environment. Birds build yeah. nests, you know. They like animals even sometimes deceive each other. They 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 put on displays, they lie. They, I mean, so, so control isn't bad. However, and, and I don't even think that, I mean, because to the extent that civilization is built on control, I don't think that civilization is necessarily bad either. 
but we have explored through civilization certain ways of being human and developed certain kinds of technology that have yet to be devoted toward their true purpose. The true purpose of technology is to serve life. That's the true purpose of your capacity to alter your environment as well. Like anything you do, you know, control, like we could speak instead of your impact on the world outside of you. Like you could say anytime I, I, you push something, you're kind of controlling the world. You're exercising a force on the world. So you're, and you have a capacity to do this. You are in the physical. You interact with the world. Everything you do has an effect on the world outside of yourself. And the same is true of us collectively. So the question then isn't, should we control things? Because deliberately or not, we are going to influence the environment. The question is, what do we serve with, and I called them gifts before. And one of these is this incredible capacity that human beings have to, to control or change their environment. So the question then is, change it toward what end? And that comes back to why am I here? And the, and the thing about, about the Cartesian way of thinking, the passage that you mentioned the, to become the lords of, and possessors of nature, that's at the end of a, of a paragraph where he's extolling the powers of technology. And he, in that paragraph, he basically states what they are for. They are for the purpose of becoming the lords and possessors of nature. That is a myth that it is that that I would like to discard. <laughs> Not to discard the technology, but to discard that purpose and and to um, proclaim a new purpose, which is all of this technology, all of your powers and gifts as a human being, their purpose is to serve life and beauty on this earth and maybe someday beyond. And if we reorient technology and life itself, our human lives toward that, we will be living in paradise very quickly. I appreciate you, man. Thank you so much for living your life that you have to be able to show up the way that you do. It's very, I really greatly appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Aaron. Where, where can people go to get more into your work or where, where, where or just in general, where, where would be appropriate well, to point people? Um, I have there? things on the internet. Uh, Perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I figured. <laughs> My website's charlesisenstein.org, but I mostly publish on Substack these days. Right. You can find it. The, you know, the Transformational Weight Loss book, that was from a while ago. That was like a decade ago or something, right? Oh, more than that. That was like this booklet. I wouldn't even call it a book. Yeah, right. And I never, yeah. I know, when, when people ask me how many books I've written, I never include that. Uh, okay. But, but I also <laughs> made it, I made an online course built around those ideas. Oh, cool. I had like this really cheesy name for the course, Dietary Transformation from the Inside Out. I don't know why I named it that. That's on my website. And, you know, you can do a DIY, DIY of that. Yeah. I wanted to talk about some of that stuff, but we'll maybe another yeah. another time. I was, I'm, I'm really interested in what the hell, what the heck is going on in the world right now. And what is the solution as opposed to just, you know, bickering over, you know, who's, who's bad and who's good and trying mm -hmm. to kind of define ourselves as the good guys. So I yeah. appreciate you illuminating some light on what the heck's happening out here. All right. Well, Thank you so much. I appreciate you. I look forward to seeing you again whenever it happens. Thank you all for tuning in. That's it. That's all. Over now.
Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. Once again, I want to thank much of Megan for leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you guys want to leave us a review, there's a good chance I'll read it on here. And uh, I just appreciate it. You just scroll down on your phone. It takes about 25 seconds plus review plus subscribe ideally as well. And let me know what you think. If you think it deserves a five star, that's greatly appreciated. Thank you for telling your friends. Thanks for doing you. Thanks for implementing the information from this podcast if it feels implementable. That's it. That's all. Enjoy your week. See you soon.